Hello, and welcome to All the Gospel, a sermon podcast from Kirksville Assembly of God. We are happy to have you as a part of our listening community. Thank you for joining us as we explore the Word together. You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're still there. Hope that's okay with everybody. Yeah, where else would we be? There's a lot of pages in the Bible. Uh, We're in verse 26 of chapter 1. We will look at the rest of chapter 1 and finish it off today. Got a few notes on it. I've got an outline that is one handwritten page or 10 pages typed in large font. So we'll see how it goes. Um, I do like to end with a time of prayer at the end. So whether that's an altar call or a time of reflection and prayer, uh, I do like to have those opportunities for us at the end of the service. So with that being said, let's dive in. We'll read a few verses and kind of work our way through here. So verse 26, then God said, let us make man. uh, And we talked about this. The Hebrew word used for man here includes both men and women. Some translations use mankind there. Let us make mankind in our image, or uh, I kind of like to think of it, let us make humans in our image. So uh, I didn't get very far. So then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man or mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And we'll pause there and let's look at some of these things. The first thing I want to look at today is this image of God. Let us make mankind, let us make humans in our image. It says it twice in verse 26 and then verse 27. So God created man Uh, God created humans in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Everything else was created according to its own kind. And you notice that sometimes the Bible will say things, and you're like, well, what's it saying that for? That the the livestock were created after their own kind, and the, the sea creatures were created after their own kind. And then you get this differentiation here in this verse where it says that humans were created after his own kind or his likeness that we're created not in just the likeness of a creature but we have this image of god that is a part of our creation story as humans and to be made in the image of the creator is an awesome thing i mean we might not know initially like well what is that talking about what is that image well we'll get into it but just to pause in that moment and to say there is something different about humans than there is about the animals and the trees and the land. There's something different about humans. This, that is an awesome thing already. There's lots of interpretations of this image of God, and I don't want to necessarily, you know, discredit and say this one. There's a lot of ways to kind of understand and interpret it. I was really happy to be in the Wednesday night uh, class a few weeks ago when they were talking about the image of God. I thought that was really good. Uh, and one, they talked about in that, the, the lesson they were doing, that humans have the ability to create beauty and have complex language 
And I, that's definitely a part of what this image of God is. Um, but I want to look at it in a little bit different of, of, of a way. That, then, and not again, not to say that's wrong, but to kind of add on to that, to build this complexity. You know, God's not simple, and he doesn't always do things the way we want him to because he doesn't do things just real simple for us. But uh, John Walton, I meant to bring these books. I could show them to you. I referenced several, several books here. He says, the image of God is not neurological. It's not like something in our brains, and it's not materially defined in terms of neuroscience or genetics, and it has no material component, though the image of God is embodied by us. Okay, the image of God distinguishes, distinguishes us from all other creatures, though not anything that distinguishes us from other creatures tells us what the image of God is. For example, opposable thumbs, you know, that's unique that uh, among humans, but that's not the image of God, because if you were to lose your thumb, you would not lose the image of God in you. Um, uh, also complex language, writing, some of these things, not necessarily the image of God so much as the way that we are able to uh, do or to have the image of God. It can, at first I thought, well, maybe it's male and female that's the image of God. He created us male and female, but he also created the animals male and female, and they weren't created in the image of God. Uh, also, maybe so I, then I thought, well, maybe it's fruitfulness and multiplication because he tells people to be fruitful and multiply. Well, he also told that to the birds of the air and the, and the fish. So uh, it couldn't be that necessarily either. So the image of God, according to Walton, and I think this interpretation even fits with what they were discussing on the Wednesday night, is actually a purpose for our lives. And you see that in the verses. 26, the second part of 26, in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And it says it again in verse 28, the second part, that they are to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Some translations say rule over the fish and the birds and every living thing and over the earth. So our image of God and these things that we have uh, empower the image of God, but there's four aspects of the image of God in us. The first one is a function. It's a job, a role that we have as the image of God. To rule, as it's stated twice there, to do. To have dominion. To rule over. As God's vice regents. As God's governors of creation. Like we have a job to do. Taking care of creation. We've been handed the keys to creation and we are to take care of this creation. We are like assistants uh, in the order-bringing process that God began in the beginning, there was disorder, and we bring order. So, um, the prolifically and wildly fruitlessness of the created order needs to be actively marshaled. It needs to be directed, tamed, and tended so that all creation can mutually benefit. And we, as God's image, have an important part to play in this. It's part of our function, our role. The image of God is also, secondly, a part of our identity as human beings. Our God-given identity is image bearers of the Creator God. That we are created in His image, and it is who we are as humans. Thirdly, there's a representative ideal of this image of God thing as well. That the image of God actually proclaims His authority in his creation. 
So we have to remember that Genesis was written thousands of years ago in a culture, the ancient Near East culture. And what ancient Near East kings would do, think Assyria, Babylon, these places, the kings would actually build statues of themselves and put them into cities that they either conquered or they ruled over. And those statues or those images actually were the, the representation of the king's authority in that particular city. And so as the image of God, we then are the, the representation of God to his created orders. This is from the Assemblies of God website. The image of God refers at least to the role of humanity over creation as representatives of God's authority. And I want you to notice the royal, uh, the royal ideas that are happening here because sometimes we get to the Gospels and we think, oh, they're talking about, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven is near. And we think, well, where's that kingdom been? Well, right here on, in chapter 1 of the Bible, we see in this image of God, the wording, that, we, that the kingdom is actually being established in the beginning and that we as humans are the royal caretakers of his creation. When we get to talk about Adam and Eve next week and what their role and function is in the garden, I think it'll clarify some of this as well. But God is establishing his kingdom right on page one. And the ideal was that humans would be right there ruling with him over creation. We have that opportunity. And we kind of know the next part and where people go wrong. Well, why isn't that happening now? Well, people, you know, chose to good and evil on their own. But we'll get to that a little more next week. And the fourth aspect of this relationship, or the fourth aspect is relationship. The fourth aspect of the image of God is a relational aspect, that we have a relationship with the Creator that the other parts of creation do not, that the cows don't that the fish don't, that the birds don't have this relationship with God. He designed us, I mean, just think about this. He had designed us to have a relationship with him. God is relational. We see that in the, the funny little phrasing at the beginning of 26 where it says, let us make humans in our image after our likeness. The prepositions there are plural, us, our and it's caused a lot of debate. Well, who's he talking about? We kind of, from our context of having the entire Bible, it's like us and our talking about Trinitarian aspects of who God is. But there's definitely this relational component there uh, about God's creation. God intends to have a relationship with us. It was the original design, and something went wrong that broke that relationship up. And this is really good news. I think about our culture and our society today. We have a superficial, socially disconnected society where loneliness and purposelessness are pervasive. People are looking to make connections or looking to make disconnections uh, that we don't, we're so uncomfortable with relationship that we push people away. This is our society right now. You know, social media was supposed to bring us together. It's not working. Guys. It is causing more problems than good. But we're designed to have these relationships. We're designed to have a purpose, an identity, uh, to be representatives of God and to have a relationship with Him. All humans 
we're created in the image of God. So it's regardless of age, uh, regardless of sex, moral behavior, cognitive ability, ethnicity, there are, no, there are no differentiations between the image of God. And that's why it's important that we don't think about the image of God being something like complex language. Are babies not in the image of God? You know, someone with developmental disorders, are they not? No, they are in the image of God. And so it's a purpose even in their lives to achieve these things. Um, it is also more corporate than individual. I think sometimes we think I am created in the image of God and no one else is. So why don't you all just behave like me and be more like the image of God? Uh, but rather, the image of God is something that's in all of us. It may be dormant. Uh, it may be covered in, we can call it mud, our code word. Christian code word would be sin. We've covered it in sin. We're not imaging God very well. But it is a corporate thing in all of us. And if we are the image of God, this was, it always comes back to this, I think, what sometimes, um, that if we are the image of God, then it makes sense why we are to have no other images of God. So that distracts. So if we were to create an image of God, then it would distract from the one image that he created that's supposed to point back to him. Rather, that image we create actually points back to the creator. So whether it's the television, bail, um, or the, the golden video game, or the... Uh, I, I ran out of metaphors there. We don't bow down to little figurines too much anymore, but we will, we will turn on that TV first thing and watch it. Talking to myself there. Nobody else does that. But, but the only images that God allows... I guess we are the only images of God that God allows. So we're supposed to be imaging God as the image of God. Let us create mankind in our image. The second thing that comes up in verse 27, God created humans in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so I actually thought, I was like, God, when I knew that I would be doing some preaching, I thought, God, where do you want me to preach? And Genesis was it. And I thought, oh, that'll be fun. Uh, but then we get into things like this where it gets pretty heavy pretty quick. Um, but he created uh, male and female, he created them. And this is the only separation of humans in God's original design. We separate humans all kinds of ways, generations, languages, cultures. When I was growing up, if you're punk or ska or hardcore, you know, what music you listen to divides people. We divide people all kinds of ways. But God, God only separated people as male and female. Um, I actually have on my list school spirit or political party. So we're like, oh, you know, Kirksville versus Moberly. We've got that divide, that human divide. They're the enemy and stuff. But we divide. We just divide ourselves up. Um, and we'll talk more about kind of uh, male and female in terms of relationship next week. Um, but these separations, the cultural, the, the linguistic, are all contrary to the moving of the Spirit after Acts 2, where the Spirit starts to bring those back, and especially what we see in Revelation 7-9. But each sex represents something about God's nature and God's glory. And, and so when he divides it, it's important. It's a, it's a relational thing as well, and we'll talk about that more next week. But I think in our culture, again, we have to develop a theology of the sanctity of the body or just a, a 
theology of the body. How do we understand the body, theologically speaking? Because in our culture, there is some, some questions about uh, gender that have come up. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. Um, some, some things that we are uh, discussing politely um, or raging about, maybe more rage. Uh, but there's actually an Assemblies of God position paper on transgenderism that I printed off. I've got 10 copies up here, or you could link to it on your phone. I've got a way to do that. And you can read the full statement. But I feel like, because I couldn't get past this male and female without discussing this. So it gets pretty heavy here for a second. But first, I want to highlight our view that, that Christians have a high view of the body as God created it. Um, the, a biblical theology of the body, these are practically all quotations from the Assemblies of God. A biblical theology of the body argues for the essentiality of the body in determining our identity, who we are. The body has a role in playing a role to play in who we are. And the scriptural witness of the sanctity of the body remains. So the scriptural witness of the sanctity of the body remains regardless of the shifting cultural understanding of, of gender. So the biblical, the biblical understanding. The bodily aspect of maleness and femaleness is paramount. It's really important. Here's some examples of how. God's creation of humanity as male and female is at least because God intends for humans to reproduce sexually. That's like level one. God may intend humanity to be in his image as male and female together because it makes humans necessarily relational beings. So the relational aspect of it. Thirdly, the human body receives no greater honor than in the doctrine of the incarnation. So God became flesh, a body. He inhabited a body. And then lastly, the doctrine of the resurrection establishes the continuation of the human body as the intention of God in the salvation of humanity. So in, within our beliefs as Christians, we hold a high view of the body in helping us determine our identity. And what we see in culture is a lowering of the view of the body. If my, if my heart says that I'm different than what my body is. Okay, so there we start to see where that divide comes across. And I think it's really important because I'm not going to go down that road because I'm not sure that my audience necessarily has a lot of transgender people in it. If I was talking to people who were more transgender, then I would, this would go a different direction. And I would be, in this moment, preaching to the choir. You understand? So since I don't want to preach to the choir, this is where I'm going to take a different path. And I might step on some toes. So just tuck them back under your pews. Because I'm going to instead, because I'm talking to people in a church gathered, I'm going to sharply rebuke any um, hatred or persecution or meanness against transgender people or really any other group of sinners by people who, by people who identify as Christians. And I want you to understand why. I want you to understand why. So hang on before you get like your Bibles and get up and leave. Because truth sympathy must be extended to those in pain, even if we don't approve of their solution. We could view their behaviors and beliefs as a fight for survival. Okay? And, and again, if you're, the background for this is in here. All right? It's in the Assemblies of God position paper. You can have that. I want you to have that. I hope I printed enough. 
Given the theology of the body that we just talked about, the church's ministry to transgender people should help them experience increasing integrity between their birth, sex, and gender identity. But that is a long-term discipleship goal. But it is not the only discipleship goal. Nor, and I'm just quoting, nor even the first issue that needs to be addressed in the lives of transgender persons. The most fundamental issue in the lives of all persons, after all, is whether they are in Christ. That is the first and foremost element of a person and their relationship. Whatever, fill in the blank, transgender, put in addict, put in uh, like and drug addict, porn addict, whatever addiction it is, solving the addiction problem, solving the hurt problem is not our first priority. It's kind of like driving up to a car wreck. Car's on fire, person's trapped in there, uh, they can't get out, and they're bleeding. And you open up your pamphlet and start lecturing them on the importance of wearing their seatbelts. That is not the thing that they need in that particular moment. They need pulled from the burning car. They need their wounds bandaged. And that's where we're at. So, Bible-believing churches rightly critique contemporary society's warped understandings and immoral practices when it comes to sex. So understand what I'm saying. It is right for us to critique immoral practices. However, there is often a failure to critique our own unloving attitudes towards people with views and practices that are different from our own. A pastoral response to transgender persons or any person who is suffering or struggling cannot even begin if they experience or perceive an unloving, unwelcome environment in the local church or by its members in the community. Hospitality of the local church welcomes people at the point at which they are and they meet them there. Holism treats people as whole people and does not reduce them down to a single adjective. Gender dysphoria, transgenderism, drug addiction, an addict. We do this all the time. Oh, they're an addict. Blank is a discipleship issue to be sure, but so are a lack of faith and a lack of love, prayerlessness, biblical illiteracy, theological error, and other deeds of the flesh. And then in our discipleship, it takes patience to work with people as they grow. We'll talk more about discipleship. But when you are born again, you go from spiritually dead, born again, to spiritual infant. Not to mature parent, aha, I have arrived. No. And so we have to help the spiritual infant who can't feed themselves. We all know infants. And then we grow them from infant to child to young adult to hopefully to parent of a spiritual parent who is a disciple that's making disciples. Okay. Oh, I skipped too many pages. No, I didn't. There we are. Okay. So I hope you hear me. I also offered, uh, if anyone has questions, I would be happy to do a question and response. If people have questions, I know people are like, don't question the pastor and stuff, but it's okay. Only a level one pastor, so you could question. Be happy to respond. Okay. 
that got heavy. Appreciate you gracefully understanding and be happy to talk. Thirdly, rule over. We see this rule over, I think it's an important part. I'm going to move through this one kind of quick. But we've got a, so we've got the keys to the creation. All right, so think borrowed Lamborghini or borrowed whatever fancy car you like. God has given us this car to borrow. It's his world. It's his creation. He's like, take care of this thing. Uh, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. And so we talked about how that is literally about children, okay? Um, but it is not a disobedience for someone who can't have children, you know, so it's more than just that. Because we think about fruitfulness, and you know what I thought of? This, the fruit of the Spirit. I thought about a spiritual fruitfulness and multiplication, that we could be fruitful in our love and our joy and our peace. And we could spread that, we could multiply that out as a part of our ruling. See, the ruling is more than just a uh, subduing, like having dominion and dominating creation type of a thing. It sounds abusive and exploitative, like we should just exploit the land uh, and exploit the people for our own gain. But rather, what we'll see in Genesis 2, it helps us out. It's a creativity and imagination that we're supposed to rule and subdue, that children are the greatest form of creation. But I want to, I want sometimes I want to bring it out of the spiritual and bring it out of these big things and put it down in smaller ways. So is preparing a meal. That's creativity and imagination. You know, when you set the microwave at, no, I'm just joking, but preparing a meal. I think about, again, the creating order out of the chaos of the garage sales, exactly what happened. And from nothing, from junk, we get almost $1,800 for the kingdom of God. That is creativity. That is putting this, in fact, where we are the image of God and we're going to create something out of nothing for the benefit of others. To create. Art, music, poems, obviously, problem solving in some ways that we can do everything for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, do everything for the glory of the Lord, as unto the Lord. Do everything. So stop thinking that something you're doing is too small or unimportant and start doing it for the glory of God. One idea, I've got another book. Uh, it's a book on marriage, actually, and they kept having these chapters that were like back to Eden. And one, it says that uh, we are gardeners of life, that we are to tender Tender cultivation is subduing. Tender cultivation, shaping creation into a higher order of beauty and usefulness. That we tenderly cultivate not only gardens. Sure, grow a garden, yes. But the greatest privilege in shaping is shaping the character of the soul to reflect the image of Christ. That discipleship is a high order of this subduing and this Ruling over creation. Disciplers, we've talked about this before, have to be patient, enduring great pain, persevere to see the vessel completed and ready for use, to grow the child up. You know, like why do new Christians always do such crazy things? Well, we need to disciple them, help them, show them along the way. We'll talk about that more. And God gave us the power to do so. We talked about power a few weeks ago, the ability to make something of the world, that God has ultimate power because he can make the world, but we have some power because we can make something of the world. We all have it. We have the power to make something better of the world or make something worse of the world. 
the Bible as a whole, from Ed Stetzer, an article, the, the Bible as a whole, and Jesus specifically speaks clearly and unequivocally about the proper understanding of power. God owned the created order, for he had created the heavens and the earth. After establishing the created order, God delegated to humanity power to make something of this world in a manner that would glorify him and be beneficial to others. That's the kingdom of God right there. In doing so, God envisioned his good, perfect, and flourishing kingdom being established on earth through the delegated power of man. But James 4.17 warns us for whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Do the good you know to do to make something better of the world. But often we don't know what good to do or we don't know how or we feel too small. We're like, ah, the world's so big. The problems are so big. But it comes down to us each tending our garden. And think of garden as like the people that are around us. You know, the garden, of course, tend your garden, weed the garden. But weed, you weed the people around you. You help, 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 and draw people closer to God. Because but we try this. We don't know what to do. We can't live up to it. The image of God is scuffed up. It's covered. Adam and Eve decided they wanted to uh, decide good on their own terms, and they ate of the wrong tree. But the image of God wasn't lost in us. Sin separates us from that relationship with God. He wants to have that relationship with us. We were designed and created to have a relationship with Him, but we, we've messed it up. And we continue to have these little Adam and Eve moments where we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad instead of, uh, you know, the tree of life. And we still have these little moments in our own life. We've got to start eating from the right tree. We have the potential to bring God glory, but a lot of times we only want to glorify ourselves and people like us, and that just degrades God and degrades others. And I do want to say there's no stage in life where we are not the image of God. There's no stage in life where we are not called to tenderly cultivate life around us. The young think they are too young. The old think they are too old. And the middle thinks they are too busy. But each has their own special calling. Youth with their vitality. Uh, age with their wisdom and experience. And the middle with their strength and means. Each stage we have, no, we have opportunity. To do that. And there is one, so obviously we fail at it. There is only one who can do this. Jesus comes to us as the truly human one. The fulfillment of God's intentions for what it means to be most completely human. The stunning mystery of what it means to be a flourishing human is this. To fully image God, to reflect and represent God flawlessly, in God's entirety, glory, and splendor. That's how, so to be fully human is to fully image God. And we, we, we are going to struggle, but it's through Jesus. Jesus' miracles, we talked about how they demonstrate this Garden of Eden mentality of setting things back to the way they should be. Uh, but Jesus' perfect life, his death on the cross and his resurrection, is a, he is able to restore our right relationship with God. He ascended to the throne as the king of creation and wants to restore this Eden ideal within 
us and spread that from person to person to person to person. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 tells us that Jesus is the original and the true image of God. He is preeminent, the firstborn among creation. And when we give our lives to him and live how he wants us to live, we too can become more human as God intended us. More of this image of God within us. Less scuffed up marks. He cleans us up, wipes us clean. So we can reflect his image even better. We conform to the image of Christ through our worship of him. We exalt his ways as better. We exalt his thoughts as higher. We trust him and we obey him. And through the Holy Spirit, he is able to transform us. I think of uprightness. Well, we'll have to say that. What do you mean by uprightness? But I don't have time for that. So how then should we live? I want to find my shorter. I'm sure I lost it. The um, how, how do how do we live? Obviously, the first thing we have to do is submit our lives to Jesus as the true image of God, which then leads. So our submission to Jesus leads to our worship of God. As a result, in this created order thing, I think, Oh Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder. Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. That when we submit and we worship God, then he restores that relationship with us. And I, I think we run into this, uh, this mentality or attitude. We can't have a good enough relationship with God. Because when we get to that point, it's like, oh, I've got a good enough relationship with God for now. When we get to that point, I think we're in trouble. Because what kind of relationship with a spouse or a best friend would say, ah, it's good enough. It's a good enough relationship. It's in trouble. So I want to offer, where'd Jackson go? Come on up. Robbie, you could come up. I want to offer the worship team. Rick, I don't want to leave you up. We we need forgiveness for anything that we've done that has not brought glory to God. That that is his image, then we bring him glory. So as we do that, then we worship, we submit and we worship. One. Two, we use our power as the image of God for the benefit of others and the glory of God. We are representatives of God on earth. Start acting like it. And there are ways to do that. Two things, I think. Trust God enough to live like Jesus. Trust God enough to live like Jesus. Go back and read the Gospels in light of Genesis 1 and 2. How did Jesus do this? How did Jesus live in the kingdom? It's going to take some trust because it's going to it's going to require you to do some things that step you out of your comfort zone. But trust God enough to live like Jesus, to tenderly cultivate the life and souls around you, to create life and love and joy and peace. Maybe just preparing a meal. 
for the benefit of others, inviting people to your home to eat, preparing a meal for them for the glory of God, maybe a stranger, maybe someone you don't normally associate with, a neighbor that you've been at odds with. We can do these things to create life, love, and joy. Check out the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through and, and read it in light of this idea of, of how Jesus wants to live in this idea that everything has come together. And live generously as the image of God because God is generous. We've got to finish the chapter. Genesis 1, 29-31. We'll see God is generous. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And, every, and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every thing green plant for food and it was so and God saw that he had made God saw that everything that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day did you hear it I got distracted a little bit a good question about does this mean lions eat salad I don't think that's what it's talking about because I was I was bugged by that too but listen to it again I'm gonna pull some sections out Behold, I have given you everything. You shall have it. And behold, it was very good. God gave us in creation everything that we needed. Everything that we needed. His kingdom is a kingdom of abundance. And we live like some teenage boys. When I was a teenager, mom would go grocery shopping once a week and she'd buy ice cream. It was gone the next day. Why? Because we'd all get three big scoops of it and we'd eat it in one day. Was there enough? Yes. Why did it run out? Because we were greedy and we were selfish and we didn't think that there would be enough. And we lived with not an abundance mindset of like sharing and deferring to each other. We always ran out, not because there wasn't enough, but because we were selfish and we were small-minded and we were hungry for some ice cream. We do this with life too. We think there's not enough, but God says there's enough. We think, but God, there's not enough. It's like tithing. 10% is the minimum. I'm going to say that, by the way. 10% is the minimum. There is no New Testament command that we give 10% of our money as a tithe. The New Testament command is give generously. If not, give sacrificially. 10% is a minimum that we're trying to get by on. Because why? We have small ideas of what God can do. He has given us everything. And we think there's not enough. He has stocked the house with food and we're hiding it in our closet because we don't think there's enough. And we're stuffing it into the cushions of our couch because we don't think there's enough. We're hiding it. He has given us everything we need in abundance. So be generous with it. Stop holding on to it yourself. Give it all away. And watch what God can do. God will provide. We'll read.
read. This is from Matthew 6, 25. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Look at the birds. Consider the lilies, O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And what you'll find out is you don't need three scoops of ice cream at a certain meal. What you find out is that God has a plan. He is enough. He is enough. So our role and function on earth is to represent the generosity of God assigned to humans in the beginning. But it starts with our relationship with Him. And it might be good, but it could be better. Don't get stuck in a good enough relationship with God moment. Don't get stuck in a good enough relationship idea. That's good enough. So I want to go time of prayer. 